Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. And with me today, as always, Nathan Fox. Uh, how you doing, Nathan? Oh, I'm okay. Uh, San Francisco is beautiful. starting to get foggy because uh, it's summertime now, and I am sick. So I'll just apologize to the listeners right off the bat. You're going to hear me um, hacking and coughing. Our man Sean will probably edit as much of that out as possible, but... Uh, yeah, it's 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 been a been a little bit of a rough one. I'm not gonna die. Don't worry. Oh, and the test is right around the corner, so you must be busy and not feeling well. That's not fun. Yeah, I've been super busy and like hacking and coughing in my classes and stuff. And uh, but no, it's all right. I'm 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 making it through. Yeah, this is not a time to take a break. I guess. No, no, uh-uh, no busy season. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Cool. Well, in today's uh, episode. We have a lot of good things we're going to talk about. So some people have emailed us about, quote, splitters. Uh, That's where you have a high LSAT and low GPA or high GPA and low LSAT. We'll talk about whether that's a thing or whatnot and what you should think about that, if anything. Um, We also have a question about the writing sample, which is the ungraded section at the end, uh, the sixth section, uh, what to do there and so on. Um, some questions about last-minute panic, panic attacks, which yeah everyone suffers from, so we'll talk about that, give you some ideas how to avoid it. And lastly, a, an update on our playbook. Um, anything else you want to add to that, Nathan? Well, I, I did want to say um, it's not quite there yet, but um, happy anniversary, dude. Oh, is it... Uh, what what anniversary is this? <laughs> it's our anniversary. It's, it's, <laughs> we're, we're coming up on uh, one year of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Believe it I or can't not. believe it's been a year. I know, I know. It's kind of shocking, but uh, so uh, we started it back in like February or something. We or started no, sorry, it June. Yep. Wait, I don't even know what month it is. That's a serious problem. I'll never forget it because um, I remember that I was working on getting the episodes posted. Um, around the time of my sister's wedding, which was in um, early June of last year. So, um, yeah, we're we're coming right up on one year. By the time this episode comes out, it'll be about exactly our one-year episode. Cool. So we've put in, um, yeah, 34 episodes. We've got something like 50,000 downloads. Um, we're still kind of growing month to month. Last month was our... Uh, Actually, this month, May of 2015, is our biggest month ever in terms of downloads. And I don't know about you, but I'm getting like more and more emails from listeners, and um, the feedback has been surprisingly positive. I guess. Did did you? Uh, what did you think we were going to do with this? What did I think we were going to do with the podcast? Yeah. I I didn't know really, but uh, I am glad that yeah, I, the feedback I get is positive. People are always like very grateful that we do it but i i'm always wondering i'm like what did we say i hope i guess it was helpful so i don't even (laughs) i don't even remember what we've said and it's funny too because people will quote me in class and i'll be like i i said that let me me clarify (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah well you always get a little bit of that right people saying oh you said this and that like whoa (laughs) hold on a second now (laughs) i might have said that but there was some probably some context and uh yeah um I guess I wouldn't. I, I would. 
I didn't know that we would be still going a year later. Um, I think, you know, we, we kind of did this on a, on a lark, didn't we? We didn't really have grand plans for this thing when we kicked it off. No, it was just like hit record. See what <laughs> well, that's still what we do every, every week so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or every two weeks to give people a peek behind the curtain. But uh, we have had a ton of great guests and we've had a ton of really awesome emails from listeners. Um, it means a lot to us when we get those emails um, telling us how great we are. So keep those coming in to, <laughs> no, um, to, to uh, help at thinkingelsat.com. And um, yeah, keep listening. Keep telling a friend. You know, obviously we don't advertise or anything. So the only way people ever find out about this is by you going out and um, turning on your friends who are studying for the LSAT. So, and uh, yeah, you know, don't forget to go back to the beginning and listen. Um, you can really start at episode one and listen all your, all the way through if you want. I, a lot of listeners have done that. And um, there's so much cool stuff, right? There's like great LSAT teachers. There's really fun discussions, a um, bunch of stuff about law school admissions. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, any goals for uh, year two of the Thinking LSAT podcast? What should we should we try to achieve something? Um, <laughs> I, I think we probably should, although I'm not sure what. Do you have any ideas? I have no idea. World domination? World or? domination. That would be good. Um, yeah. I don't know. I think just keep putting out, you know, it seems like we've settled into a pretty good one episode every two weeks schedule. Yeah. I have a feeling that the, some of the listeners would want more content than that, like want a weekly show or probably some of them would like a daily show if they could get it. Mm-hmm. We're obviously never going to do that because it's just too too much <clears throat> work for us. Um, I, although I suppose if we did like more guests, we would be able to put out more episodes. Like, um, you know, that would allow you to take a week off or allow me to take a week off. Yeah, and, yeah, that's uh, true. And do guests. Alternate. We could we could think about that, I suppose. But I don't know. I I enjoy the discussions that I've had with you, Ben. I mean, I've learned a lot about LSAT teaching since I've been doing this. I feel like I'm a much better LSAT teacher now than I was uh, just a year ago. Oh, I feel the same way. Um, there's definitely some things that I felt one way about before and now feel differently about and uh, confidently so, you know? Yeah, so. I quote you in class all the time. I mean, my students know, my students know, even the, the ones that don't listen to the podcast know who you are because I'm always telling them about how I used to think this way, but then Ben convinced me to do it the other way. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. So, yeah. yeah, well, you know, everyone knows about you, of course, because the the book and you're kind of um, you're famous for being a straight shooter. So. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Um. Okay. So. Yeah, one year in. Thanks to all of the listeners, and uh, look forward to more good things in the future. Yeah, June. I'm looking at the numbers right now. June of last year. We had a couple episodes, and we had 874 total downloads. And now we're at about 10 times that per month. So keep growing. We keep growing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. The first uh, email that I have here is from Kaylee in New York City, and she says, I kind of paraphrase here a little bit, but she says, Dear Nathan and Ben, thank you so much for creating the Thinking LSAT podcast and putting a great free resource out into the world. 
I've been listening to it pretty obsessively during my commute, and it's been such a wonderful source of sanity and information. I'm taking the June 8 LSAT. That's one of the pieces of feedback that I get a lot, Ben, by the way, is that it's a source of sanity. I, I've I never thought about that before. but uh, Yeah. Yeah, neither did I. I. I do feel like I've heard that before, too. I guess there's a lot of panic out there, especially if you like read the forums and whatnot. Um, yeah. Are you thinking like top law schools and stuff like that? Uh, there's just a lot of hysteria out there generally. And so if we can be the kind of voice of calm and reason, I, I'll, I'll definitely take that on. I think it's necessary. Yeah. Um, so Kaylee has two issues here in her email. I think we should take them separately because they're definitely separate issues. So the first one, she says, I'm going to be a splitter of varying degrees for all the schools I'm considering applying to. Is there truth to the quote, if you're below the 25th percentile of GPA or LSAT, you need to be in at least the 75th percentile on the other to be taken seriously as a candidate advice? Are there certain schools more friendly to splitters with a higher LSAT and lower GPA? And then she gives a little detail here. She says, I've been scoring mostly 169, 170 recently, and I've hit 173 twice. My LSAC GPA is a 3.1. It was a little higher than that in her last two years. She went to an Ivy League school. She says she's got <clears throat> good strategy for addendum, strong recommendations, noteworthy things, including a Fulbright scholarship. Even with that, 3.1 GPA is below the 25th percentile for many schools. Would an admissions committee at a school like NYU or Georgetown even look at my full application if I don't score well above their 75th percentile on the LSAT? I think there's a lot there. So I don't know, Ben, you want to take a crack at it? Sure. Yeah. Well, so I feel like this is a question we're getting a lot where people say they have low GPAs and then I feel like their GPA isn't as bad as they seem to think it is. Yeah. Like a 3.1 is low at top tier programs, but she said that in the last two years she had a 3.4, which is still um, low for you know the the best schools. But I feel like that 3.4 is a much more important number that they're going to be looking at because the the reviewer is going to recognize that yeah okay she has a 3.1, but. Her last two years were three, four. That seemed like I, I'm much more. If I were reviewing someone's application, I'd be much more interested in who they are now than who they were four years ago. Um, and so it seems like she's more like a three, four. And then with such a high LSAT score, I don't know. I just don't feel like this is much of a problem. There, there's so much more to the package. A Fulbright in Ukraine. So to answer her question directly, she says, if I don't score well above their 75th percentile, would they even look at my full application? Yes, they will look at your application even if you're not well above their 75th percentile. I think that I could say that confidently, and I haven't even been on the other side of the fence here. So Yeah, the schools will say that they look at every page of every application no matter what. I'm not sure I believe them that they look at, you know, if you if you're below the 25th percentile on LSAT and you're below the 25th percentile on GPA, then then I would say, you know, they might not very seriously consider you because they just have better applications um, numbers wise that are on the table. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you're I don't think you're automatically disqualified just because you're below the 25th percentile on 
especially on GPA, um, I, I would guess that if you're below 25th percentile on LSAT, that would be a lot more worrisome than being below 25th percentile on GPA, just because the LSAT is the one like objective measure that they have uh, that they can compare all students on. Mm-hmm. Whereas GPA is just inherently kind of hard for them to um, hard for them to 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 compare mm-hmm. one to the other. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> she didn't list her major here. Yeah, that's how I was just thinking in the back of my mind. Yeah. What were you going to say about that? Well, yeah, I mean, if because if her GPA is <clears throat> her LSAC GPA is a three point one, but she studied electrical engineering. Mm hmm then that might have been like she could be at the top of her class with that 3.1. Yeah. So I, I, I think they have to look deeper into GPA issues just to see how rigorous your major was and and what, you know, all 3.1s are not created equal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It also depends. She said she she's from an, she went to an Ivy League school. I, that matters, too. Right, like a three-one at an Ivy League program is going to be weighted more than a three-one elsewhere. So I, I guess I mean, except well, do we have any update on like the grade inflation stuff that was happening a few years back? Do you remember that when like everyone at Harvard was getting a four point oh? Oh, um, no, I don't remember that. Oh, okay. Well, I just think you're not just your numbers. Um, if you were any single number, I would say that it's your LSAT score, not your GPA, mm-hmm. um, because LSAT score is a kind of a more indicator of like horsepower, uh, or at least it's a more useful single number because it tells you a combination of talent and how hard you can work. GPA gets tainted by things like how difficult your school is, how difficult your major is, and how much you kissed ass to your teachers to get better grades. Mm-hmm. With all this other stuff in her application, I would think she is a candidate at every school. Yeah. I mean, I I would apply to every school that she, any school that she really wants to go to, I think she should definitely put in an application. Yeah. She's going to write the addendum to point out the fact that her GPA in the last two years were higher than her overall. Um, it looks like her GPA, her first two years must have been really pretty poor, right? To get to a 3.1 average... Mm-hmm. With a 3.4 average in the last two years, that means she had to be like a 2.8 in her first yeah. two years. Yeah. So I think whatever her addendum strategy is going to be there, you know, maturity or whatever it is, of course, she's she's not the 2.8 student she was when she was a freshman. She's the 3.4 student she was when she was a senior. And, you know, she figured things out and she's doing much better. And... Especially if she rolls in with a 170 something LSAT score, 170 uh, Ivy League, Fulbright. Of course, they have to take her seriously. Oh, definitely. One, what do you think when she says, um, "Even if I don't score well above their 75th percentile on the LSAT," what do you think about that? Uh, it sounds to me like I think there's some serious misinformation out there about how well you have to be doing. I mean, yeah. that's that's in the upper echelons of the school. Yeah. It, when, once you hit the 75th, you're still, you're a higher than three-fourths of the class. Yeah. My gut tells me that if you're 
one point above their 75th percentile, that's probably just as good as being four points above their 75th percentile. Yeah. What do you think about that? Does that does that make sense to you? No, it does. I think that there's, um, it's not like you're going to see a whole lot more above that. Well, and but also they they report their 25th percentile and they report their 75th percentile. So once you're above their 75th percentile, then you would be one of the people that would bump their 75th percentile up by a point. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you being four points above doesn't bump their 75th percentile up by four points. It would only bump them up by one point, right? Unless they admitted so many other students that were also four points above the 75th percentile, which is just kind of unrealistic. So I, I guess I end up thinking about that on the bottom end more often where it's like, you know, the, the, the 25th percentile at like, say UC Berkeley, the 25th percentile is 164. I have a feeling that a 160 and a 163 are looked at almost equally. Mm -hmm. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, you're below the 25th percentile. So we have to decide whether we're willing to let our 25th percentile number slide down by a point. Yeah in order to get you, you know, I don't, because there's not just that much of a difference, like intellectually, there's no difference between a 160 and a 163. Um, It's just a matter of their numbers, the statistics that they have to report out. I have a feeling they think about those things. Oh, I'm sure they do. And, And just to unpack this a little bit, what you're saying, correct me, correct me if I'm wrong here, but what you're saying is that that, that 25th percentile or, or whatever that number is, depends on who is that 25th right student and so if you have even like a 140 that's not going to change that 25th percentile number right right right. yeah it's not an average thing it's just a you know 25 25 percent of the class is below this number Mm -hmm. and they've got a whole bunch of 163s and a whole bunch of 164s already in the class Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if if 25% of them are at 164 and lower, if they admit you with a 140, that would never bump their 25th percentile lower than a 163. It would just be, you know, now 25% of the class are at 163 or lower mm-hmm. if they admit you with your 140. So, <clears throat> I mean, at that point, you know, they like Berkeley is probably not literally admitting someone with a 140, but I think that a 155 or a 160 might be the kind of same thing at, at Berkeley because it's already below their 25th percentile. They're already kind of stretching to admit you. Mm-hmm. They probably don't care so much exactly what the number is at that point. But, yeah, I agree. But the difference between a 163 and a 165, on the other hand, at Berkeley, my guess would be that that's a big difference because mm-hmm. now if they admit you with your 165, it doesn't lower their numbers. Yeah. Um, anyway, more of speculation from the Thinking LSAT <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but yeah, but <laughs> I'm so good at that. Um, so uh, this reminds me, you remember when, when, I think it was Noah, right? Or who came on the show? It was uh, Matt. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Um, remember he sent us those uh, calculators, the, the formulas that law schools use to weigh GPA and LSAT? Yeah, uh-huh. And the general, I mean, every school is different. That's one obvious takeaway. But it's his his general, um, his generalization was that the the top tier programs did weigh GPA a little bit more than LSAT score, at least in their formula. I don't know. I mean, I still feel like the LSAT score is 
an easier indicator to look to because it's so standardized across all schools. And I feel like Anne has said that they look at the school and the major and so forth. So I'm not too sure what to make of all of that, but I, I seem to remember him saying something like 45% LSAT, 55% GPA, if you just look at those two factors. Whereas it flips for the lower schools, like below the top 15. Oh yeah, that could be. I I don't remember. I mean, do we did we post that on on the website somewhere? We did. Yeah, oh, okay. I, I think we did. The the I mean, it's a confusing <laughs> PDF if yeah. anyone finds it. But I think the bigger takeaway was just that when you try to look at these top ranked programs, and his thought was, I think that the higher ranked schools are a little more concerned about GPA because they're not as worried about slipping i guess in the u.s news and world report ranking whereas- well they're they're also not as worried about like is this person going to pass the bar yes yep right i mean everyone's pretty smart who's going there yeah the the um bar passage rate at schools in the top 14 is really super high it's basically like anybody who goes to those schools that wants to pass the bar can pass the bar because they've already got a 165 or higher LSAT score. People with that level of ability to read and write just don't fail the bar if they try. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So <clears throat> lower ranked schools, when you get, uh, you know, let's talk about 50th in the country or something like that or below that, then you're now dealing with people that are more like 155 LSAT, 150 LSAT. And if, if that's the highest LSAT score you can possibly get, like you've studied, you've worked hard, and you end up at a 150, then that becomes a bit of a worry, like, well, is this person going to pass the bar or not? So I I think that's why lower-ranked schools then, you know, they're not that impressed by your 4.0 if you've only got a 150 LSAT because a 4.0 but a 150 LSAT is like a potential fail the bar, Mm -hmm. whereas a 3.0 and a 170 LSAT is not so much a fail the bar. Two tests. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's your ability to take the test and 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 score. So, okay. Um, By the way, that yeah. reminds me. So before uh, at the end, if we still have time, I have yeah. some seriously good bar studying advice. But it's we should save it for the end because it's <laughs> not for people for a long time. But they can keep it in their mind because it's really simple. Oh, okay, awesome. Yeah, can't wait. I'm sure some people will uh, will write that down and remember it three years from now. Yeah. Um, so splitters generally, I would say stop worrying about it. Uh, stop reading the forums and freaking out. You know, the other thing is there's nothing you could do about it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, if, if, well, I guess try freak out more about the test and yeah, try to like go higher. But the reality is you're going to try to go as high as you can, or you should be doing that anyway and not worrying too much about, what exact number you get just try to do the best you can yeah the the higher you get your LSAT score the better everything's going to work out for you so yeah this thing of obsessively calculating and recalculating and recalculating you won't know until you send in your applications um and bizarre stuff happens anyway right I mean people who you would think are otherwise awesome candidates or are just totally awesome candidates end up getting denied and people Mm -hmm. end up getting in who you didn't think were going to get in so there's some special secret sauce going on behind the curtain at the law schools anyway. And um, all this all this analyzing time should probably be spent studying for the LSAT instead. Yeah, and I guess to that point, I feel like whatever score you do end up getting, um, 
I think people undersell themselves a lot of times. I hear people, uh, you know, they say, oh, I'm a realist, uh, so I'm not going to apply to Georgetown. And I'm thinking, well, your numbers aren't very likely. I don't think, I wouldn't tell my friend, oh, they're getting into Georgetown. But I wouldn't say don't apply. I mean, that's just, that's throwing in the white flag before you even try. Yeah. Um, and granted, you have to consider how much money you want to spend on applying to these schools. But if you can get a fee waiver, or at least try to get a fee waiver, then I would say a lot of people sell themselves short on schools. I think they have a, a plausible chance of getting into. I just think that they get so obsessed with the numbers and then rule themselves out. I think that's totally right. I mean, if, if there is a school that you've grown up dreaming about going to, then I think you should apply to that school, you know, if you're anywhere close to the numbers. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say go ahead and apply to every school in the top 14 hoping to get lucky. You know, that's that's a little bit ridiculous. Yeah. Um, you do have to sort of apply to a range of schools that kind of match up with the range of, of schools that you're likely to get into. Mm-hmm. I think that's a sensible way to do it. But absolutely, around here, you know, Bay Area, there's just so many people that dream of Stanford. And I, a lot of times people say, oh, yeah, well, I'm not even going to try for that. And it's like, well, wait a minute, you've got a pretty decent GPA and your LSAT score, you know, you ended up with a 166 or something. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of below Stanford's numbers, but maybe there's something in your story, you know, maybe there's something in your personal statement that they're going to latch on to. Mm-hmm. And why would you deny yourself? Let you know. Go ahead and let them deny you. Uh, yeah. What is that? Is that fear of failure or what? I don't. I don't get. I don't. I don't understand it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's uh, like they're trying to be practical or realists or whatever you know or reasonable. But um, now that we're talking about, it, I actually, I almost think there's like two groups. I feel like I come in across people who are. Like, if I don't get this 172, then I'm just, I'm not going to apply to these schools or whatever. And then they get like a 166, like you said, or a 167, and they they act as if that's like a totally fatal score for some of these higher programs. And then I get, I think, some other people who score in the upper 140s or something, and they're they're talking about programs that would just probably not even be ethically able to accept them without worrying about their future, either the bar passage like you were talking about or their success at the school. Yeah. And that's all the schools that they're talking about applying to. And I'm thinking this is, you know, he has two extremes kind of selling ourselves short or just shooting for the moon and totally wasting our time. Yeah. I would think that the bulk of schools that you apply to, should be schools where you're at least in the 25th percentile, at least above the 25th percentile LSAT and GPA for that school. Yes. Right? Because they're, that's, the, that's the, the, the schools that are, they're looking for people like you. And you might not get into every one of those schools, but you're going to get into quite a few of them um, if you're at least 25th percentile uh, in both. <clears throat> or if you're higher in one and lower in the other, that's fine too. You're like kind of in the wheelhouse of those schools. And one or two reach schools, though, I think is totally fine. But I, I agree with you. I do hear people like, oh, I got a 145, and I'm just going to go ahead and apply anyway to the top-tier schools. And it's like, no. <laughs> I mean, you can, but nothing's going to come of it. I'll see you six months from now when you've gotten denied by all those schools. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. I, uh, I, you know, one of my biggest like regrets, I guess, and I don't really regret it, but when I, um, I went to a small public high school in the Central Valley of California, okay. um, and we had, you know, limited resources. And I had a college, my college counselor told me not to bother applying to Stanford because someone had gotten into Stanford from the previous class ahead of me. Mm-hmm. And that like Stanford would never admit a student from the same school two years in a row. So don't even bother. Oh, <laughs> and um, the same counselor also told me that I was allowed to apply undeclared to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which I was not. So I got that's the only school I got denied to was Cal Poly San Luis Obispo because I had applied undeclared. Um, and you're not allowed to do that there. So anyways, like <laughs> the there's bad advice, you know, and, and uh, bad counseling. And I probably wouldn't have got into Stanford. I didn't have very good grades um, in high school. I've never had very good grades. I don't like authority, I guess. Um, <laughs> but uh, I had like a super, super high LSAT score. And, you know, I don't know whether I would have gotten into Stanford or not because I didn't apply. And Wait, are you talking about high school? Or are you talking I'm talking about, about no. I'm talking about applying from high school, applying to college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not law school, but you had a high SAT. Is that what you're saying? I had a super high SAT. Oh, okay, got it. Oh, did mm-hmm. I say LSAT? I had a super yeah. high SAT. <laughs> I had already taken the LSAT. Like, what the heck? No, man? no. I had I had a super high SAT and like decent, but not top of my class grades. Yeah. But really, it wasn't worth throwing in an application to Stanford to see if they'll say yes. That's crazy. I mean, that's a potentially kind of life altering sort of a thing, right? To get in there. Yeah. So, and it's like, I grew up, you know, I I grew up like, who knew what you'd be doing now? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I definitely don't regret or like wish things had worked out any differently. You know, I have the greatest job in the world. Mm -hmm. I, my, my gig is unbelievably good. I'm not, I'm really not complaining, but I am saying for, listeners out there, you know, why would you not throw in that one application to the school that you've been dreaming of? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're reasonably close, I, I would not be just like short. Yeah. I don't know. Selling yourself short. I think you said Ben. Yeah. This reminds me. So that's high school. Um, I feel like I, I talk to students a lot of times who have talked to their pre-law advisor and these pre-law advisors are, you know, spread out throughout the country at all these different uh, undergraduate, you know, universities. And at first, when they say, oh, my pre-law advisor said this, I'm thinking this person is a pre-law advisor. They sit here every day doing law school related stuff. I'm assuming that's all they do. Maybe they do other things as well. But I would ex- I kind of have this, I don't know, deferential feel like I should. Oh, what did your pre-law advisor say? I'm curious. And I'm surprised by how frequently I'm like, they told you that? Yeah. Just the other day, someone got a 166. She had taken the LSAT once. Uh, didn't prep as much as she would have liked um, for various reasons. And she told this to her pre-law advisor. And her pre-law advisor said, well, you cannot get a higher score. Oh, my God. So don't take it again. And I'm thinking, this is this Oof. is his job? Like. Mm. <laughs> I guess he has a certain idea. I think these people have certain ideas and they just go start, you know, 
No, the the person who gets a 166 cold or almost cold is exactly the person that ends up scoring 175 after they prep. Yeah. Um, that's just, that is ridiculous. Yeah, where did that, a lot of people have that belief that, uh, well, it was a study um, that it, it showed, you know, allegedly showed that mm-hmm. people don't improve when they take the LSAT again. Or, or that like, oh, you know, the average person only improves by one point or something when they take the LSAT again. Which, well, it's, it's actually, yeah, it's on LSAT, <clears throat> right? And it's it's two points, which... Oh. is isn't nothing, first of all. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. even if that's all you got, that's that's great. Yeah. And then we I th- we might have even mentioned this before on the show, but it's uh, it's it's heavily weighted or it's the, those numbers um, don't take into the account that some people are going to prep in between uh, test attempts and some people are not going to prep. So, yeah, if you are not going to prep at all, take the LSAT, not prep at all again, take the LSAT again, you're not likely to improve much at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or if you're fully prepped, take the LSAT, fully prep again with no new, you know, information or no new plan. If you just do the same thing again, you're not likely to improve a whole lot. Mm-hmm. But if you take a class with the Princeton Review, get a 150, and then start working with like me or Ben or a bunch of other good LSAT prep <laughs> materials, you know, like you, you get yourself the Power Score Bibles and you really study the shit out of them, then of course you're a good candidate to improve the second time you take the test. Yeah. And yeah, no, that's too bad. Wow. Oh, you got a 166? Yeah, yeah. Just that's good. Just keep it. <laughs> you know, or like probably there's some like, oh, don't you don't want to risk taking it again because you don't want to go down. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you got a little lucky. So. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I'm not slamming all counselors out there. There are a bunch that are really, really good. But um, I have heard some myths and kind of half truths coming out of some of their mouths. So just be really careful um, who you're listening to. Yeah. So uh, let's see. Kaylee had another question, right? It was about the writing. Yeah, I think we're done with the splitters. Yeah. Don't worry about splitters. Um, Do your best on the LSAT and go ahead and apply and see what happens. Uh, So then she goes on and she says, do you have any recommendations for practicing the writing section of the LSAT? I know it's not given the same consideration as scores, but I'm trying to make every part of my application as strong as possible. Through friends, I've inherited prep tests one through, oops, I probably shouldn't say that. So I have most of the writing prompts (laughs) since they were included. Yeah, hard copy. Uh, She has most of the writing prompts and she can practice until her eyes bleed. But I guess I'm wondering how to evaluate my writing. A recommended rubric or any advice would be helpful. Best, Kaylee. Thanks, Kaylee, for the email. Um, keep them coming, and everybody, keep them coming. This is uh, a great way for Ben and I not to have to work on the agenda for the show, <laughs> is if you just send us email at uh, help at com. Anyway, what do you think about uh, Kaylee's questions about the writing sample? Okay, so actually I do have a recommended rubric. Um but before I get to that, I would say she has all these prep tests. That doesn't matter. She only needs one, in my opinion, so that she can see what they're asking 
if she's really gung-ho, take 20 minutes and try to sketch out an answer. But I don't know if I'd even write it completely, but maybe just attempt it to see what it feels like. And then I'd say she'd be done. Totally. Practicing until your eyes bleed would be a huge mistake. Um, I don't think the world's best LSAT writing sample is worth even one more LSAT point. No, um, not at so all. if you're gonna, you know, if you have limited time and everybody does have limited time, you should not be practicing the writing sample. You should be practicing real scored LSAT questions instead. Yeah, um, until you're hitting 180 uh, 10 times in a row, um, I think you should probably focus on LSAT. Totally, totally. Yep. Um, that said, people do need kind of a strategy, right? So yep. maybe what, tell people what, what the, some people have no idea what the writing sample even is or when it is or how it works. Oh yeah. Okay. So there's a couple of funny things here to point out. I mean, I think we might've mentioned this before maybe, but in any case, there's, you're going to take the test. You have uh, five multiple choice sections. The first three will be back to back. Then you'll have a 15 minute break and then two more multiple choice sections, both 35 minutes, of course. Um, only four of those are graded, which is why the prep tests only include uh, four multiple choice sections but um and you don't know which one is not graded but then after all of that after those five multiple choice sections are done they will collect your tests so uh, if you're planning to bubble during the writing sample don't Um, but in any case they collect your tests and then they give you another 35 minutes to do an ungraded uh writing sample which is basically they give you an argument Oh, no, I'm sorry. They give you they give you a dilemma. So it may be the the Kim family or the Joneses or whatever, and they're trying to make a decision between two options. Uh, the one I just read the other day was, um, which by the way is just dumb luck because I don't ever read these things. But uh, the family was trying to decide whether to go on a vacation. Well, they were going to go on vacation to the mountains, and they wanted to decide whether they should fly or drive. Okay. And there's a couple values and so forth. And basically, you have to write an argument in favor of one of those choices over the other, and that's the writing sample. So this one's going to be like the, the Joneses need to know if they should fly or if they should drive. And it'll usually say there's a couple of bullet points, right? Like here's the things that the Joneses are interested in. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's like I would guess that it would be something like cost and t- quickness or something like that. Yeah. So in this particular one, they wanted to increase the amount of recreational time they would okay. have for their kids. Yep. And they wanted to make the travel experience as educational as possible. Ah, okay. So increase the recreation time available and make it as educational as possible. And then you're going to see a whole bunch of facts, right, about the driving route and a whole bunch of facts about the flying route? That's uh, that's exactly right. And in fact, we were reading it in class and just laughing because every fact uh, goes towards one value and then towards the next value. It was like a, a continual... A continuous yo-yo effect. It was like, if On the they one hand, yeah. if they drive there, they're gonna go through like the barren desert, which, you know, has no swimming pools or recreational places. So you're like, oh, okay, so they shouldn't drive. But then it's like, but there'll be lots of museums with historical significance. Oh, so it's educational. So they should drive. 
<laughs> so we, should, so we yeah. should drive. And then, of course, it was like, oh, but it's going to take so long for them to get there. So they won't have as much time in the mountains. You're like, oh, they shouldn't drive. And, you know, you just went like one fact to the next. It was back and forth. Okay. Um, and that's the idea. But the, the, they, do, they do that deliberately. I feel like it's just like law school where there's no right or wrong answer. It's just let's give you a gray situation and have you make an argument in the context of that. So then why can't I just write the essay like, um, well, there's lots of good reasons, pros and cons for why the Joneses should drive and why they should fly. Uh, well, I think they're testing your ability to be kind of like an attorney. And that is you're given a bunch of not so perfect facts and you need to make a case for your client. I mean, what's the prompt actually say? It says uh, uh, choose one option over the other, and then yeah. make a case. I've defending got one. That. I've got one right here. Um, okay. So the prompt is: the scenario uh, presented below describes two choices, either one of which can be supported on the basis of the information given. Your essay should consider both choices and argue for one over the other based on the two specified criteria and the facts provided. There is no right or wrong choice. A reasonable argument can be made for either. That's the entire prompt. I, they really should put like in bold or underline the part where it says you should consider both choices and argue for one over the other. Yeah. I think that's the important part and that's actually almost the only way that you can fuck this up is to ignore that. Mm -hmm. Right, because they don't want a book report. This is not a summary of the choices. Yeah. This is an you're supposed to write an advocacy essay. Yeah. So it doesn't matter whether you pick the mountain route or the the driving route or whether you pick the flying route. That's not that doesn't matter at all. And you could literally flip a coin. But the point is, you have to decide and you have to make a case for one of those two choices. Exactly. As long as you do that, I think you're going to be fine. But you do have to do that. You have to follow the directions. If you don't follow the directions, then that's a not a lawyerly thing to do. Yep. Okay. So then what's your rubric or what do you... Yeah, so here, here's my specific advice. Um, and that is, first of all, I would make a decision um, which side you want to support. Obviously, you have to decide that at some point. But then... Um, <laughs> The one place on the test where they do give you scratch paper, yeah, which is right. the least important part, right. uh, they do give you scratch paper. And on that scratch paper, I would honestly just frantically, not to be frantic, but just quickly write down all the pros and cons given the facts provided for and against the position that I've decided. Yeah. And the reason I do this is because if I pick a side and then say, okay, here are my reasons in my head, and then I start writing that argument, almost certainly as I'm writing it, I'm going to think of other things that are better. And then I'm going to say, ah, oh, shoot. I mean, this is written in pencil. <laughs> You're not yeah. going to go back and change anything. It's also not that important. So um, just to make it as sort of systematic as possible, I just do those bullet points. And then when I'm done with my pros and my cons, my reasons for and against my position, I would circle the three best of both. So the three best reasons for it and the three best reasons against it. 
Okay. Yeah, I've seen people do this with a T chart, by the way. Um, you write pros and cons on the top of your sheet and then sure. draw a line in between it. And then you write plan one, plan two down the left-hand side of the column and you are, and then you draw a line in between those. And so you've, now you've got four quadrants, pros and cons um, okay. for each of the two plans. And then you can just write little bullets into those quadrants. <clears throat> and then when you write your essay, you obviously want to hit as many of the pros in the, the plan that you picked. Hmm. And you also want to hit the cons in the plan that you don't pick. Yeah, I guess, uh, so the quadrant, I understand what you're saying. You're saying you have pros and cons for each choice, right? Yeah. I guess I kind of see that the, the pro for one is some often like just the con for the other. So um, It could be, but it could be like the pro for the flying plan is there's going to obviously be more time for recreation once you get to your destination. Mm -hmm. And then the con for the driving plan is that it takes a lot of time on the road. So I get, I guess I get what you're saying that sometimes it is a binary kind of a thing where one thing is so good on, on that, that it's, it's also a con for the other thing. Mm -hmm. But I guess now my example is, is exactly what you're talking about where it's totally binary point is, <laughs> yeah, you're going to hit the good things for your plan and you're going to hit, sometimes they're the same thing, but the bad things for the other plan. Yeah. Okay. Now, in the writing itself, I don't want to, I mean, I think a lot of times people kind of shun sort of templates because they're like, you know, writing can be creative and whatever. Yep. But I think this is a very, it's, a, it's the same old argument every single time. I think yep. there is a systematic way to do it well and quickly and then be done. Um, I would say this. This is what I always recommend. Now, this, this is a little constrained, so I wouldn't necessarily follow this precisely, but you get the gist you can adjust based on that. I would make it four paragraphs. The first paragraph would literally be one sentence. It would say, the Joneses should fly, or the Joneses should drive, depending on what you decide. And then the next three paragraphs would be my three reasons for that argument. But in those paragraphs, I would, I would include concessions. Um, in other words, I would concede weaknesses that are related to those reasons but then also dismiss them. So I might say, although the trip is going, although the driving trip is going to take longer, and thus reduce the amount of recreational time they would have, they're going to end up getting more recreation time through the, or the, through the parks that they can visit, depending on whatever the facts say. You know. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that's totally fine. The I don't I don't teach four paragraphs, but um, we agree that the the first thing is just a clear statement of your choice. Mm -hmm. If you make that clear statement right up at the top, then it's, it's obvious that you have followed the directions. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, first sentence, the Joneses should fly or first sentence, the Joneses should drive is great. The way I usually teach it is go ahead and just go right into your very, your first best reason why they should fly mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in the very first sentence. I, I think you can do this thing all in one paragraph if you want. But um, it doesn't matter. Breaking it up. I like the one sentence first paragraph, actually. That's kind of um, a bold move. But um, it's like shows some confidence, I guess, in your writing to do that. So that's totally fine. But yeah, you make as many points as you can. And then I like the concessions thing, too. Yeah. So if you go back to my like quadrants approach, mm -hmm. you know, there's going to be bad things about your choice. And there's going to be good things about the other choice. 
mm-hmm. and you don't want to go so you don't want to spend a lot of time on those but you do want to acknowledge that they exist uh, yeah. a, a couple of them anyway and yeah. you do it in a way you're it's like you're making yourself look even-handed even though you're absolutely not being even-handed mm-hmm. so it's like while it's true that the flying plan would get me to my destination quicker mm-hmm. exactly and then but and then you point out the bad thing about the flying plan and you emphasize the bad thing about the flying plan or you you say yes it's true that the flying plan would get us there quicker but and then you point out something that's even better about the driving plan and if you have any hesitation <coughs> about whether to concede weaknesses or not just grab any supreme court brief from any recent case and you'll see it these the best attorneys in the in the world do this they say even though blah 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 yeah let me let me address the argument that my opponent is going to make against me on my own terms now Right. Advocacy doesn't mean like totally ignoring all the facts that are bad for you. You need to try to acknowledge a couple of those facts and spin them back in your favor. Mm-hmm. Um, there are occasionally also some um, ambiguous facts that are put in to the fact patterns. Did you see any of those when you were going through it with your class? Uh, I don't remember. I just remember, we just remember kind of laughing about the fact that <laughs> that they were all so like right on target. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there probably were some. I'm sure there were some like gray areas. Like, oh, I wonder what the one about this. The one example that I remember was um, there was one where it was like, which school should the Rodriguez's send their um. Oh, is this the one where she has to like walk through the snow or something? It was well. It was. There's two schools. They're trying to decide where to send their daughter to school, and she's fights. she's shy, and mm-hmm. so they want a quote stimulating social environment, and then the other thing was they want a convenient location. So leaving the location out of it, there was a fact in the fact pattern that said that one of the schools has a has larger class sizes than the other, and okay. it struck me that if you're creative, I think most people would just like kind of reflexively go, Oh, larger class sizes. That's bad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But remember they wanted a quote, stimulating social environment for yeah. their daughter. So I think it's just as easy to spin that fact as you can spin that as good, no matter which side you choose. Mm-hmm. Right. You yeah. can, it's easy to say small class sizes are better for stimulating for a shy child you know but it's Mm -hmm. just as easy to say big class sizes are going to provide a stimulating social environment yeah for exactly uh, for Anya so there are you might find one or two facts like that where you can kind of go either way with it how about summing up final sentence uh I don't do it um I don't think it's a problem but I feel like if you made that first sentence it's pretty obvious what your position is. So. Yeah. I think one sentence to sum up um definitely now not like five paragraph essay style, right? You don't have enough time to tell them what you're going to tell them and then tell them and then tell them what you told them. Mm-hmm. Um this you can't do the 7th grade five paragraph essay. Um but you can just one sentence and it can be super super formulaic. Uh it's just for the above reasons, the Joneses should drive. Yep. That's it. I mean, that that puts a bow on it. It takes two seconds to write that sentence, and it announces that you're done. And is it necessary? Probably not, but it's really easy to do. So I would probably recommend that. Um, I don't know. Did we cover it? It's not scored. Many schools don't read it at all. 
Some yeah. schools do read it. Some schools claim it's the first thing they look at. Oh, interesting. I have a feeling that that's more common at lower ranked schools where they're worried about your ability to, to you know, like write a, mm. a, a sentence, a legible sentence in English. Yeah. Um, I think they're going to look at it more carefully if you did your undergraduate degree outside of the United States. Mm. Mm-hmm. They might look at it more carefully if you had poor writing grades or if you were an engineering major and you don't have a lot of solid um, writing stuff on your transcripts. Mm-hmm. They might look at it more carefully if you have a gloriously written personal statement. They might, yeah. they might go, whoa, wait a minute now. You know, is this, did this person really write this? And they might mm-hmm. look at it like just to do a kind of a reality check. If I were in admissions, I would look at it, I think. Yeah. I mean, uh, writing is a big part of law school. Well, I should say it's part of the exams, but it's a big part of legal practice. And you could tell, couldn't you? I mean, it, it would only take me 10 seconds looking at someone's writing sample to have a pretty good idea um, yeah. what their ability was to, to read and write. I, I think so. Yeah. So um, it's nothing to be worried about, but you should just... Obviously, you have to do it. Um, let's see. What else do I usually say about the writing sample? Oh, you 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 actually can't leave. You have to do it. Yes, that's right. A lot of people try to get up and leave, and they tell them no. They'll cancel your LSAT score if you get up and leave. Um, it, it is a required part of the test, even if it's not a scored part of the test. Oh, you don't need to make up any facts. I've I've heard of people being like, well, I'm... Anya's godfather and for that's how I know that Anya should go to school A or whatever and you just <laughs> it's not it's not like fiction creative writing time there's plenty of facts on the page to justify uh, writing a full 35 minute essay matter of fact most lawyers could probably write all day on the prompt mm-hmm. so you don't need to make anything up any other tips uh, I think a lot of people ask how long should it be. You have, I think, two pages of uh, lined paper, right? Yeah. I yep. would say you you can do it in a page. Do it in a page. There's no there's no length here necessarily. It's more about did you make your position clear and address any weaknesses? Yeah, I would try to write neatly. Um, you know, the people who are evaluating your application are just they're looking for clues about you and if you scribble your writing sample you know that's just not that lawyerly i mean i have horrible kindergarten style handwriting yeah but i would just do my best to at least make it legible yeah if you make it illegible then that's not good oh, i i agree i um i think this reminds me of what ann said when she came to talk to our class she said she was i can't remember what she was talking about something about what you do when you visit the schools and she was like people are going to judge you based on how you appear and how you present yourself and i'm not saying that's right but it happens so you <laughs> you need to just take that reality into account and i think if you write slop you know sloppily and whatever it's just people are going to judge that whether it yeah. makes sense or not and if you're like me there's nothing you can do about it i mean i my handwriting is going to suck even if I try really hard, mm. but at least it's going to be slightly better than it would be if I didn't try. If you just, yeah. 
so at the very least I can make it legible to where if someone actually reads it and if they actually read it, you know, it won't take more than a sentence or two and they'll, they'll be able to hear my voice there and they'll go, Oh, okay. Actually this dude can write. That's fine. No problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you scribble it and they can't even make out the first sentence, then that's going to be probably, you know, not a point in your favor. Yeah. What about, uh, what if you don't know how to spell a word? I would use a different word. Yeah, obviously, use a different word. No one's forcing you to to use any particular word. Um, what do you think about uh, big words versus small words? Small words, every time. Totally. Um, what about long sentences versus short sentences? Uh, I would say favor short, but actually a variety, I think, is the ideal. So yep. not like really long. That's not like LSAT <laughs> long. Yep. Uh, but, you know, a medium-sized sentence and then a short one. Uh, for yep. emphasis. Yep. I, I think one of the most common writing errors that I see when I read people's personal statements is just um, too big of words that they don't really know how to use properly. Yep. And then um, too long of sentences, which are just hard to read. Yep. So uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with sprinkling in some short sentences, some very short sentences. And even if you write only short sentences, if you do it well, I think it could be totally effective. Mm -hmm. If you write only long sentences, I mean, it, you better be David Foster Wallace. And, you know, even then, it's like not really that readable for most people. No. So be nice to your reader and write short sentences. Go ahead and use short words. Conversational is totally fine. Mm hmm. Uh, just a side note for uh, personal statements, it's okay to start a sentence with because. It can actually be very good. It's okay to start sentences with and or but. No problem. In fact, however, moreover, are really heavy. I know those are just random things, but I know they get people uh, agitated, so I just thought I'd throw them out there. I just think conversational writing generally is going to be fine. Yeah. You know, Maybe not when you're submitting a brief to the court, but when you're writing this personal statement, it needs to sound like you. And one bit of feedback that I commonly give people is like, would you ever say this? Yeah. You know, read that out loud. Has that sentence ever come out of your mouth? Well, then if it hasn't come out of your mouth, then why are you putting it on the page? It's this, why, this is supposed to be your voice. Why is it now all of a sudden this weird formal stilted thing? Yeah, I would agree with that. I would just add that it should be conversational with a slight polish in the sense that if you could edit what you say, you know, um, like edit out things like um. Um and like and yeah, all that. Yeah, you would, you would have, you know, nice sentences. You wouldn't have phrases like, you know, and all that stuff, of course. But right. it's just, it's like basically polished conversation as if you were a perfect speaker but still just a speaker not a writer and you know a novelist or something like that it's just it's just uh talking straightforward so yeah um first person what do you think about that i guess i'm confused by the question because that's how i think i would write like yeah pe pe people ask me like is it okay to write in the first person i mean your law school personal statement should definitely be in the first person uh the writing sample it oh the writing sample i don't think would be but it wouldn't make sense to be right like you wouldn't say i think this you would just say 
you just affirm it. Right. You know? the, right. So the the only thing, yeah, you don't need to put the word I into the LSAT writing sample, but and yeah, because it's not I think the Joneses should drive. It's just the Joneses should drive. Yeah. Um, but I I'm, I think it might still be. Is that though still first person voice? Ah, whatever. Anyways, point is, um, don't you don't need to say I think that. Just go ahead and say what you think. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I I'm trying to think if there's anything else in the writing sample that I usually talk about. I think that might be it. Clear statement of your choice. Hit as many of the good things about your choice and as many of the bad things about the other choice as you can. Acknowledge a couple of the weaknesses of your case, but then try to spin it back into the good things about your case. Yep. And that's kind of it. Don't worry about it too much. Don't practice it. Read through one of the prompts before the day, and that'll be sufficient practice. Yep. That's great. Cool. So, again, thanks, Kaylee, for those um, questions. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Um, so the next uh, email is about last-minute panic attacks. And um, who's this from again? Yeah, so this is uh, not from Joe, but he said to call him Joe if we read it on the on the air. Oh, okay. So it's uh, someone Joe. whose job, I think, probably wouldn't like it that he's applying to law school. Anyway. Uh, okay. Um, Hello, Nathan and Ben. I've been listening to your podcast for a few months and really love your discussion of test strategies, admission strategies, and of other students' problems. I like that. Uh, So here's the problem I'm having. I took the test the first time in February after only six weeks of practice, which was 13 full tests. So you've got a hint about what kind of a uh, hard worker Joe is here. He's saying only yeah. 13 full tests is when he <laughs> took the first test. Well, I guess that was the official LSAT. So, you know, that's six weeks is kind of not a lot for studying for no. the, taking the official LSAT. And he got a 165. But he had been improving so rapidly toward the end that he decided to retake in June. For the retake, my study strategy has been to do every single prep test ever. And he has been. So he's been doing three to four tests a week since February. Unfortunately, the problem is that my scores for the last 20 tests or so have been all over the map. My scores were all 173 or higher. Then I had a six test run where everything was 170 or 171. Then I had an eight test run where everything was 174 or higher. And now I seem to be back in my 170 to 171 slump. There's no reason for these. He sent a chart of all of his results, like oh, wow. 40 data points. I attached that, Ben, to my email. I figured we would oh, uh, post that to the um, website, maybe if anybody wanted to look at it. It doesn't have any identifying information on it, I don't think. Um, there's no reason for the ups and downs. He did the tests fairly out of order. He says even the older tests fall into line with these crazy runs. I don't know if it makes any difference for your discussion, but I'd like to go to Yale or Harvard with Columbia as a backup. My GPA is 3.75, and I think I need 174 for Harvard, 175 for Yale, and probably just 170 for Columbia. What should I do? Should I put off test day? Thanks very much. Call me Joe if you read on air, please. Um, What do you think? Uh, Joe, do not put off the test. (laughs) Take it. And um, I'd be curious if he could figure out, well, okay, stepping back, 
Um, he talks about these times when he has above 173 and these times when he's around 170 or 171. And I get this sense that he feels like that these are dramatically different. Yeah. But I don't feel like they're that much different. I realize it would be a lot nicer to get a 174 or a 175 than to get a 170. But we're only talking a few raw score points here. I just wonder how much of this is more his feeling that he's doing a lot differently than he actually is. Yeah, he. I think he's making um, an issue out of nothing here, really, with his... He thinks, you know, he's perceiving it as these crazy ups and downs, like this is dramatic swings one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but the truth is, like, all of these scores are 170 or higher. And, okay, sometimes it's 170, 171, sometimes it's 174. I think he went as high as, like, 178 or something. Mm-hmm. But I would be shocked if there was less variance than this. Yeah, I mean, I would. I would be too. Yeah, I would call this. I would call these results insanely consistent, not in, not inconsistent. I think these are crazily consistent scores. I agree. Okay, so clearly, don't withdraw. Obviously, you've done so much work. You've been working so hard. You need to be done with this at some point. You, you're ready, dude. So take it and see what you get so i think um well there's there's a couple things i would add to this he says that i think i need a 174 for harvard and a 175 for yale and probably just a 170 for columbia um that word need is what's concerning me because i don't think you need a 174 to get into harvard with a 3.75 gpa a 4.0 graduate oh yeah he's got a graduate degree yeah um people get into Harvard all the time who don't have a 174. Now, I'm sure he wants that 174 so it can become all the more certain, but uh, it's just I think that he's also, 174, yeah. it's not necessary, and it's mm-hmm. also not sufficient. So all that is is just an arbitrary number where he's decided, like, well, if I get this, then I'll probably get in. Mm-hmm. And you just, you, you just can't control it to that, to that degree. Right? I mean, yeah. the truth is he could get a 180 and still get denied. He could. Now, of course, it would be a lot less likely, but it, at, at that point, once you get that high of a score, other things become much more important. Your personal statement, do you sound like a dick? Or, you know, do you sound like a reasonable person who's going to take advantage of their obvi- obvious talents? Yeah. So. Letters of recommendation, resume, what have you done? What do you want to do with your Harvard JD? It's just, this is, it seems clear to me that he's focusing way too much on every single test score. Um, yeah, because where did he get these numbers? They're, they're, he's putting these, he's probably putting the data into some calculators somewhere. And, you know, 174 is the point where it turns into a most likely admit at Harvard. Mm, like a green. Yeah. Well, right. At 174, <laughs> it goes green. And at 173, it was yellow. But yeah. I, he's just, I think you're slicing it way too finely at this point. Now, I, I mean, to decrease the volatility anymore, if possible, my suggestion, which I think we talked about last time, would be to 
track all the I mean he's got so many tests so at least from the most recent tests that he's taken track all the questions that he's gotten wrong and just own them like it sounds like he's got the energy the will the time or at least he's making the time to take any question that he's ever missed and get it to the point where he could turn around and explain it to his buddies yeah. five times over and that to me would just attack exactly what seems to be where he's losing points and might decrease the volatility any uh, some more which would be awesome yeah. i mean i think it's already great but if that's what he if he's looking for something to do that's what i would suggest yeah he didn't mention what he's doing to review these prep tests so it makes me slightly worried that he might be like substituting quantity for quality Mm-hmm. Where, because I see just so many students want to do this, where they just like hammer prep test after prep test after prep test, and because they want to get to that next data point, you know, they want to. It's almost like playing a slot machine or something, right? It's like, well, I just I got to ching ching ching, got to get that one next. You know, want to see the one seventy eight come out of the machine, yep. so they just yeah. keep hitting the button, and it's like, well, whoa, wait a minute, dude, you just got a one seventy, and that's a fine score, but you mm-hmm. missed ten questions. So uh, let's take a look at those 10 questions and make sure that you understand exactly why you missed it. You know, not yeah. just look at the right answer and go, oh, okay, that's fine. But like dig into it, you know, yeah, explain it to a friend. Tell your friend exactly why you picked the wrong answer and tell your friend why you avoided the right answer and tell your friend what you're going to do next time to not make that same mistake. Yeah, I'm thinking actually there's to, to, to build off of what you're saying, three things here. One, he's a prime candidate for a blind review of the questions that he's struggling with during the section. Like if there's any doubts about an answer he chose, he should be circling that and then reviewing it before he grades it because there's not going to be that many. Yeah. Two, um, underst- I think some people, a lot of people don't realize this. There's When you get a question wrong, there's really, I think, two things you should focus on. You should focus on the logic. Why is the correct answer better than the wrong answer? Why is the wrong answer worse? What makes them wrong? What's the What are the words that make it wrong? That's the logic. And a lot of people understand that they need to understand that. But I think the other thing that people need to recognize is what they actually did right before they picked that wrong answer that brought them to that. Was it that they, yeah, they maybe they didn't understand the logic in that moment, but why didn't they understand the logic? Were they thinking about time were they did they not prep enough before going into the answer choice in other words they need to focus more on the actual process that they went through to get to that answer and that might do more actually to prevent them from making that same mistake again than just understanding the reasoning behind the correct answer yeah I, I think that's great advice I just I would say generally speaking you know spend more time analyzing the mistakes that you've made and um, you know really dig into it and figure out why you missed it um, not just go directly to the next prep test um, it, it's clear I think that Joe should sit for the June 8 LSAT um, hopefully yes. Joe will get his 174 or five or whatever he thinks he needs and then be done with it. I would love to see Joe apply all of this energy to something um, more productive for the world. You know, like this guy's going to be, he's going to go do some science or something. He's going to go <laughs> cure cancer or something. Um, so it's awesome. Like, uh, 
thanks for writing in and uh, it seems like you're doing really great. Um, I guess one warning I would give for sure is, uh, you know, if he keeps pulling the lever on the slot machine every day between now and the June 8th test, I would think he's putting himself at pretty big risk of um, like downward, downward spiral mm-hmm. and burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd be looking to sort of end on a good one here um, in between now and June 8th. Like the next time you get a 178 or next time you get a 175, I think you should probably stop scoring yourself and just take that one into the test with you. Um, because the worst thing that could happen is like he, he pulls the lever again and a 169 comes out and then he goes into like full freak out mode. Yeah. Um, the work, you know, he's, he's put in the bulk of the work that he needs to put in. I think at this point he needs to just maybe spend some time looking closer at the questions that he's missed, but I don't think that he needs to continue racking up the data points, um, from here on out. Yeah. Especially because this episode is going to come out just a few days before the June 8th test. So yeah. I, I would think everybody listening, you know, if if you're taking the test in three days, I fully give you permission to not do any more timed practice tests, like scored practice tests. You don't need to be scoring yourself two days before the actual exam. Um, do some practice by all means, but it should be sort of a relaxed kind of um, reviewing questions, looking at questions in depth, and a lot less like worrying about your score. The worrying at, at the at the last minute just it's not productive at all. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think um, what, just to go back to one thing you said, you said the worst thing that could happen would be to get like a 169. You know, and then go in the downward spiral, yeah. And then go into the test. I, I would, I would say, I would just, just to emphasize this a little bit more. I would say the worst thing is actually not so much getting that score, but I think what you're talking about more here, and that is believing right that that's a problem and putting so much stock into one test. The reality is, is that, and so you want to avoid that, so you don't go down into that mindset. But if you can recognize that it's not about any individual test, and in fact, if you got a 169, I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that you're not going to get that. You're going to do higher on test day. Yeah, so. if, if, right, if I got a 169 or if Ben got a 169, we would both be, we would both laugh it off and go into the test and get our 180. You know, it would be like no problem. But that's because we've got kind of a, bigger picture perspective on the whole thing where we realize that any one test is just one data point and all it takes is a couple questions to go the wrong way and you end up with a, a down tick on the on the scale but it doesn't it just doesn't have to mean anything right there's mm-hmm. there's randomness um, some of the tests are a little bit easier some of the tests are a little bit harder some of the logic games like click with you some of the logic games don't quite click Sometimes you narrow a logical reasoning question down to a 50-50 and you guess right. Sometimes you narrow it down to a 50-50 and you guess wrong. So you add up a couple of those little blips one way or the other and everyone is going to have a plus or minus four or five points probably at least natural variation in their scores from day to day. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the only exception to that is somebody who scores 180 on every single test. And like, I've not seen a lot of those people around. No. Um, and you don't need that either, right? It's like so pointless to even get to that point. Um, mm-hmm. 
it, Joe is already like in the 99.9th percentile of all LSAT test takers. And all Joe needs to do is get like a good, one of his good performances. If he gets one of his good performances, or even if he gets one of his average performances, then he's totally fine. So the thing that I'm worried about is him having one of those bad blips, one of his bad days, which are going to happen. I'm sorry. There's nothing you can do to control that. Sometimes it happens. Hopefully it doesn't happen on the day of the test. But if, as he's practicing, as the test day gets closer, if he has one of those bad days, the thing that I'm worried about is that he takes it so seriously that then he yeah. throws off his entire mojo and he's mm -hmm. like, now he's like circling down the toilet bowl um, with, t you know, because people start doing then more tests, test after test. Oh shit, I better do two tests a day now. Yeah, yeah. And burning themselves out right. faster. And they, they start, they are, they're losing sleep. They're not eating right. They're drinking five-hour energy drinks. You know, they're just like <laughs> melting down. Yeah. Um, have I yelled about the five-hour energy drinks before on the show? Uh, I don't know, but someone just asked me yesterday if they should drink coffee, and I said no. If you don't, don't. Don't but fucking – please don't do this, people. Please don't do this. If you're not – if you don't take Ritalin, then don't fucking take Ritalin on the day of the LSAT. If you don't drink coffee, don't start drinking coffee just for the LSAT. Don't ever drink five-hour energy, period, because that shit seems scary and dangerous. Don't <laughs> just don't do that. It's not good. <laughs> That's what is Red that Bull, stuff? It's that gross. Stuff. Yeah, don't just yeah. don't do that. And you know, if you do drink coffee, then fine, drink coffee. But don't think that you're gonna like performance enhance yourself <laughs> to a good LSAT score. The people yeah. who are good at the LSAT are good at the LSAT. And you're not going to magically make yourself better by chemical enhancement on the day of the test. I, you know, I had recently actually had a student say that she was planning to take Ritalin on her, the day of the LSAT. And oh. I, one, I tried to talk her out of it. But then two, you want to guess, Ben, what my next piece of advice was? If she, if she insists that she's going to take Ritalin on the day of the test, what do you think my next piece of advice is? Uh, I don't know, actually. <laughs> what did you say to that? I said practice. Then taking oh, practice, of course. Yeah, practice with your Ritalin now. Like, uh, yeah, I said, well, okay, then you better go to the, I don't know, street corner or whatever it is and go buy yourself a dime bag <laughs> of Ritalin so that you can, because like there's a practice test coming up, you know, this Saturday. So yeah. I want to see you there jacked up on Ritalin so that you can practice taking the LSAT with Ritalin so that you don't freak out. I mean, I've had people literally call me after the test and say, yeah, Nathan, I took a five hour energy and I had a panic attack. So I had to cancel my score. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, one, I could have predicted that. Two, you could have, if you were going to do it, you should have done it with your practice tests too so that you don't have anything different going on on the day of the test. Yeah. Okay. Um, hey, I just, I just realized I'm sorry I have to meet with someone. It's oh, already, boy. Uh, we better go. 2.30. Hey, um, update on the Thinking LSAT Logic Games playbook. It uh, I have Ben has sent me the sample chapter, and the sample chapter is going to be come out coming out very shortly. I think we're shooting now for June sixth. Is that what we said? June uh, yeah, 5th or fifth? June fifth. Friday, June yeah, Friday, June fifth yeah. is the target date. So go to thinkinglsat.com and sign up for a newsletter if you haven't already. Everyone on the Thinking LSAT newsletter is going to get that sample Logic Games uh, chapter, and we think it's going to be great. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Thanks, Ben. Go meet your student. Yeah, thanks a lot. Okay, see ya. See ya.